Welcome to The Beauty of Conflict, a podcast about how to deal with conflict at work, at home, and everywhere else in your life. I'm Chris Marie. And I'm Susan. We run a company called Thrive, and we specialize in conflict resolution, communication, and building strong, thriving teams and relationships. Conflict shows up in our lives in so many ways. Most people, unfortunately, are not very good at handling conflict. Most people have never been taught the right tools for dealing with conflict. And then it leads to unnecessary friction, arguments, passive-aggressive emails, tears, hurtful comments, stuckness, all kinds of things we don't want. We're on a mission to change all of that. We spent the last 20 years teaching our clients how to handle conflict in a whole new way. We're here to show you that conflict doesn't have to be scary and overwhelming. With the right tools, you can turn a moment of conflict into a moment of reinvention. Conflict can pave the way into a beautiful new system at work, a new way of leading your team, a new way of parenting, a new chapter of your marriage where you feel more connected than ever before. Conflict can lead to beautiful things. Hello, today we have a special episode where I'm going to interview Susan to talk about why the beauty of conflict, like what does that mean, and also to talk about how our history impacts how we show up today in conflict. So welcome, Susan. Oh, I'm so excited to be on the show. (laughs) Um, We've been having so much fun interviewing people, and we did, and we wanted to interview each other. Yes. Today is that day. (laughs) So Susan, what, what does it mean, the beauty of conflict, and why the beauty of conflict? Well, really, the beauty of conflict comes from this idea that generally speaking, I think most people think of conflict as painful and difficult and avoid it. And I believe that conflict is beautiful. And when I think of beauty, I don't think of it as joyful or comfortable or fun. (laughs) Um, I think of beauty as something that's rich and deep and has a lot of texture to it. So sometimes that can mean that it can be uncomfortable, but it can also be sometimes it can be fun. Sometimes it can be lighter. Sometimes it's heavier. Sometimes it it's that combination of all those textures that makes conflict beautiful. And we, I think in our fear of the pain of it, lose the potential of the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to people to reconnect to is to see conflict as something that's very natural and inherent to who we are and actually is the root of all transformation and creativity. Well, you know, you we're probably going to get back to this, but you bring up a good point that most people think conflict is bad. They weren't trained in it. They worked to avoid it. They want to diffuse it. And that's a lot to do with how we grew up and seeing conflict model, learning how these big people around us deal with conflict. So can you tell our listeners (laughs) what you learned about conflict growing up? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because you would think over the years that I'd have a great response, a simple story about that, but it's not quite that simple. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, can, I sort of equate it to the story of two dinner tables. And when I was young, I grew up at a, in the summer at a camp. And there was a camp director and there was my mother who was the nurse. And out in, we sat out on the porch and there was the camp director's table. And then there was my mother's table. And I could usually choose between the two. And most anyone who came out to the porch got to choose between those two. And what I will say is over at the camp director's table, everything was fairly quiet, measured. If anyone was talking, it was usually him. (laughs) And he might be sharing a story. He was very charismatic, but you could feel a bit of the tension at that table. 
um, not much was really being said about anything, you know. Um, so versus at my mother's table, a lot of times the camp counselors and people would come out and they would have these debates about issues going on in the world, about religion, about, and they would be very passionate about their opinions. And I always thought it was interesting, the tone of the two tables. Now I'll be clear, neither table was really talking too much about anything relevant to each other. So you on, mean like interpersonal and personal, okay. but like on the one table, it was just mostly quiet, him holding court, holding court. <laughs> and at the other table, there was this rich ideological debate about politics issues, which was way more energizing. But also, I don't know whether exactly had much to do, too much to do with the, the people involved. Although I guess you could learn a lot about them from the stories they told. Like I can remember some of those can, can, counselors because of how they showed up at our dinner table <laughs> and who they were. Now, how did that context, how does that inform how you show up in conflict today? Well, I, I think, you know, one, one thing about that was I did learn or believe that it was okay to tell a good story because that was what would happen at the camp director's table. <laughs> he would tell a good story and mesmerize people with his kind of charismatic personality. Everyone else would just listen. And I also learned that it's really okay to wrestle about politics and religion as, as long as it doesn't get too personal. And, <laughs> and that those two things, um, they're, and one, you know, they are a way to sort of mask mm. a, a lot of what else is going on. Now, help people understand what it is masking. What are you talking about that it's masking? Because it sounds like, well, gosh, that table is talking about politics. So what are you looking at? Like, what do you mean masking? Well, that? I think that the thing that no one paid attention to was, you know, or talked about was why the other table was so silent, you know, and this table had a lot of stuff going on, but no one was actually talking about what was happening. And so why that's important to me is because I, I'm telling you about my experience at camp and, and that truly was a wonderful place of freedom for me where I learned to be outdoors. I learned to love the summers and some of the people I met as camp counselors. But what you also need to know, so that's the surface, that's the two tables. But okay. beneath the surface of the camp, there was some pretty horrendous things going on. This camp director was not the, the charismatic powerhouse community service leader that people thought he was. There was a lot of really horrible things that were happening, some of them directly to me as a young child. And the way that I made it all okay was this overplay of, everything, um, not talking about what was actually going on, kind of like I am now. Like I'm probably not being fully <laughs> explicit. I'm giving you this metaphor of the two tables. So, but what you need to know is that in my childhood, there was this violent, sexual, crazy stuff that was going on related to this particular camp director. And no one was talking about that. Okay. No one said anything about it. We all just imagined him to be this great charismatic leader. Mm -hmm. And and the discrepancy there was huge, but you wouldn't talk about, you would never talk about that. So that so, was under the table. Yes. <laughs> under could, both tables. Yes. You know, and you could talk about politics and some of the things mm -hmm. going on that weren't quite right in the world, but not at the camp. Wow. So that's how, in some respects, this dialogue in this ideological debate was just as much a cover for mm -hmm. as just uh, for the 
real issues, as was the silence. Mm-hmm. And um, now this actually created as you grew up, you found another camp called the Haven. Yes. <laughs> Tell me where I'm wrong, or it felt like that. Yeah. But you got there because you were uh, facing a cancer diagnosis. Can you talk about that in the six months to live? Because that's pretty powerful. Well, you know, I, um, it was in my early twenties that I was sort of, uh, pursuing going off and living my life more fully. And I had done a really good job of compartmentalizing that history. Um, meaning that you didn't even remember it. Uh, I did not remember it directly, nor I knew, I knew there were some things I covered up. Let's just say that I'd gotten so good at telling the good stories wow. that I could avoid ever uh, having to address the real to things. address the real things. Okay. So um, to me, that might say that I had some memory of it, but I wasn't going to talk about it. And mm-hmm. I spent so much time not talking about it that it eventually just became buried. Okay. So then when I suddenly was in a situation where I was invited to be more real and relational and showing up, I actually started to get sick. Now this was in, you started a job, right? Yeah, I was teaching and I love teaching down in Augusta, Georgia, which, you know, um, and I taught K through seven health and physical education. And I, there were things about teaching that I just love, like I'm not at that point in my life. I was not very trusting of adults, but I loved kids, <laughs> <laughs> and I really enjoyed my experience of, uh, especially health and physical education, because they'd come out to gym class and they'd just be in their bodies playing. There'd be so much just genuine authenticity in the way they showed up, mm-hmm. and I could show up with them like that, which mm-hmm. I really loved. Um, so I really thought, oh, this is. This is awesome. I also was meeting people in the adult world that I worked with and in the and that I was trying to develop a relationship with. And this was the first time that I really realized there are a lot of things about me that I do not, um, uh, I, I avoid ever letting anyone see anything about mm. me. And that was really a challenge at that point in my life because I was actually trying to create, I guess you could say, more intimacy, closer relationships. And and I realized, whoa, there's like lots that is keeping me from doing that. And uh, even as I got closer, though, what happened was I started to get sick, mm-hmm. which was and then eventually. Um, and they didn't really know what was going on. No, they had point. no idea. And they'd ask me questions because I guess I presented with some very clear scars and tissue, you know, uh, indicators that there was something inherently not so healthy about my inside from scar tissue and various things. Like in your sexual reason, like from sexual abuse? Yes. And also, you know, pretty much any scar that they would find out, like I had a head scar, you know, from some sort of head injury, but I didn't have a clear story that fit what they were seeing. Now, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. They would ask me and I would give them some answer that to the best of my ability. And they would then just kind of make a note of it. And I think they decided that I, I, everyone, from what I understand, from talking later to my medical team, you know, I presented like I had an eating disorder and they just figured there was some sort of trauma in my past or something that had gone on in my uh, adult life that I wasn't willing to talk about. And they this is because you you were losing weight. I was Sorry. losing weight, so I was had classic signs of an eating disorder. So they sent me to see a psychiatrist, a psychologist to get therapy, 
And in the course of that therapy, things started to emerge. Well, finally, I mean, I, I did my best to cover that up for a long time too. And my therapist was like, I don't know what your deal is, but there's something you're not saying. And eventually what came out of my mouth was, I don't actually know. Mm. The reality is I don't really know. I get that I'm not telling you what you want to hear. And I very rarely tell anyone what they want to hear. <laughs> but but I, I've done this, you know, I've done this so long, I don't know the answer to your questions. And I figure it's better to come up with some good story. That's what I learned about the past. You know? wow. Tell a good story and keep everybody engaged. And then you don't have to talk about anything else. So, so you really were leading your life by avoiding what was under the table. We'll stay with that metaphor <laughs> and, and entertaining or giving people what you thought, uh, air quotes now, what you thought they wanted to hear. Yeah. Either talking about political world events or, you know, making up a good story that would cover up something else. I was wow. very good at those two things. Mm -hmm. And um, so needless to say, when I finally popped that bubble and told someone, you know, I really don't, you know, I don't know about my own life. I'm not wow. trying to cover it up. I don't really, I don't really remember too much. And as that came out, I began to have a lot more sort of bubbling memories of like, oh, I do remember some things. Mm -hmm. And as I started to ask questions about some of those things, like when I realized, when I went to my medical team and said, okay, you've asked me these questions. I don't, I thought I gave you answers, but I'll be honest, I just made things up to help you carry on. Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, here's what, we see, you know, we see this, uh, you know, scar tissue clarity that you have had some sort of sexual trauma and things in your life, but you're telling us, you know, nothing. So, um, or that nothing happened. So I started to go back cause I knew I, there was nothing in my current life. I hadn't been in any kind of relationship. So I knew what they were seeing had nothing to do with anything that had happened recently. Yeah. And so I started to ask questions about my past and it kind of blew up in my face because it was, you know, one, uh, I started to realize that people didn't want to answer these questions and didn't think, you know, there, there wasn't any clear answers to them. And some of the stuff I learned didn't make any sense either. And is this um, to your family you're going back or? Initially I went to my family and then I tried to draw upon some medical records from the past mm -hmm. from when I was much younger. And, you know, like there was a, something about me falling on a tree, which seemed like an odd thing to be in the medical records. But, mm -hmm. um, but when I really got who had brought me into the hospital and who had told that story, I, which, which was, was the camp director, mm -hmm. I kind of could figure out exactly how some story like that could be believed and mm -hmm. interpreted and so that it sort of spiraled into something that was way bigger and much more catastrophic than I was anticipating in terms of, you know, to the point where at one point I was trying to get information was sort of like, you'd be better off dead. Mm -hmm. So I really got whatever I'm bubbling up is of huge angst to a lot of people, a lot of people. And what was going on with your health? Well, at the time that I started to uncover and talk about these stories and my finally said to my doctors, you know, here's the truth, you know, mm -hmm. um, they started looking deeper themselves and they found out that I actually had this cancer process, this advanced cancer process. They hadn't been looking for that because oh. it hadn't been that had, I'm not in the category age frame for what type of cancer I had. It was a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And at that point, that's generally in an older, much older population. And you were 24 at the time? Yeah. 
I think it was 23 when they first big. And um, so that was a big, it was like, wow, the first time they ever had this, like, oh, we do have something medically we can address and try to treat. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty advanced by that point because it had been a long time in the, in the underground, you know, right. coming to the surface. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, too, presented a lot of different issues because, you know, that was also when I found out I had a different blood type. You know, oh. so it was then just, your father, then my father. So it was very convoluted in terms mm. of the information. A lot of mysteries too were um, yes being, and I think we you know kind of went down this path because <laughs> we were the simple question: of how did I, you know, how did I come to this thing about the beauty and conflict? Because if you're, you know, if you're listening to this right now, you might be thinking, "Whoa, this is this does not sound like beautiful." And at the time. It really was not beautiful. And like I said, beauty has actually got a lot of textures to it. Uh, on the one hand, it was, uh, was a nightmare. Uh, I was you know, being terrified by what was presenting in my body as kind of killing me. And I was presented by talking and, and getting some clarity on my health. And that was also beginning to feel like it was going to kill me. So you had conflict inside your body and you had conflict as soon as you brought that out, you had conflict in all your relationships. Yes. Which and ev- I, and eventually I, you, cause you asked me this cause it eventually took me to the Haven. Well, and, oh. um, the, the cliffhanger though is when did you oh. wind up making that decision? And the doctors told you, you know, they were oh. trying to treat your non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, right? Yes. And I was on a, um, particular protocol that was, um, what is it? Experimental? Yeah. Like clinical trial type okay. of situation. And I had gone in for my checkup nine months into this. And, uh, my physician was coming back to me saying, you know, this isn't working and actually said, um, we don't really have another option at this point. So you probably have about six months to live, mm-hmm. which was a moment in my life where I was like, you know, this inner conflict and this outer clashed big time because yeah. I, I was like, wow, I, I am going to die. Um, and I don't, um, and on the one hand, it kind of gave me the fortitude to kind of keep looking at things because it was like, I am going to die. So whatever I turn up here, you know, how, how bad can it be? And eventually <laughs> you, I'm going to, I don't have, to live, I, I don't have to live with it that long. And I mean, that sounds kind of crazy, but there was something to that. And, um, I also realized there were things I wanted to accomplish, like mm-hmm. to reconnect to my family and my, um, well, actually at the time I wasn't, I, I just wanted to live differently. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I think because I know a little bit about your history, didn't you, when you left the, didn't you see a flyer for death, oh. dying and transitions by Kubler-Ross? <laughs> the day that I got, uh, that particular piece of news, I had, uh, I had gone in, when I walked out of my doctor's office, there was a flyer on the thing about life, death, and transition, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I had no idea who she was. And for those of you that don't know, she wrote the, I think it's the five stages of death and dying. She's a very uh, prominent or was a very prominent woman in the world of death and dying. And and I saw the flyer and I uh, decided I had no money, no nothing, because there was a lot that was going on around my, uh, you know, I was in my early twenties and lost my healthcare and various mm-hmm. other things. So, and you weren't working, right. I, you know, I'd had to leave my job because of the treatments and things I was getting. And, um, 
Anyway, I wrote her and said, you know, I don't have any money and I really don't know who you are, but I've been told I should think about dying. And this seems like a concept that you're <laughs> presenting. And I actually got a uh, response back from her that I could come to her program. Uh, I could get a scholarship and come to her program. And what was fascinating about that was, you know, there were 92 people at this retreat. You know, she... Two of us had cancer and 90 other people worked with people with cancer. So oh, that wow. tells you a little bit about the her range where, you know, who she was in the world. And it was much more working with professional healthcare providers than direct people with cancer. But um, I had a very profound moment with her at one point because she does a lot of cathartic work. She actually believes that if you get in touch with your emotions and feel your emotions more deeply, that is a key trigger to health and well-being. Mm. And she had a process she used to get you into that. And at one point when I was in this particular thing, working with some emotions, I guess I, she, I think what happened was I kind of dissociated. I don't, you know, don't know all you the details. You probably weren't, of, you, since you were dissociated, you don't remember. <laughs> exactly. But I do remember her sitting in front of me, but, you know, with her, she's a little Swedish woman kind of yelling at me, get back here. And oh. I wanted, you know, you need to come talk to me. And, she's, and then she sat me down at a table and she said, here's the deal. You know, you have been told you're dying and given a date and now you're off on the dying mission. And I could die tomorrow, but I haven't been told. So I am living. And so the thing you have to do, you have to quit listening to the time, to the clock ticking and do what you need to do to take care of yourself, but then get on with living. Mm. And, you know, don't choose to die now. You're not dead yet. Wow. So I always struck me as a pretty profound, you know, you're not dead now. Mm -hmm. So live, live. Right. And uh, so that was a significant moment for me going into this process of three to six months. And so I decided to take it to heart and live more fully. Mm -hmm. And I had an invitation from my sister to go across the country and do a program called come alive mm -hmm. of all things. And uh, weren't you going to take a vacation together? But then yeah. somebody said, wait a minute, you two don't really know each other that well or exactly. So, <laughs> and uh, she suggested, she had met my sister at another program and said, I would encourage you to, to go do this program called come alive. And so my sister um, invited me to come and uh, we in drove up to Canada to do this program on this small little Island Gulf Island called Gabriola and um, up in British Columbia, right? British Columbia. And that five days was, was really for me, the transformative, my moment with Kubler-Ross kicked my ass, but my <laughs> come alive is what brought me back to life. And this is like three months into your six yes. months. I'm doing air quotes, death sentence. Yes. Because we were on a wait list for the come alive at that time. <laughs> you probably <laughs> didn't tell anybody you were dying, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I did. As a matter of fact, Diane knew when I arrived. So, <laughs> you know, but I don't think that was that, you know, that I don't, I doubt I, when they put me on a wait list, I'm sure I didn't say that. Yes. Um, and it was a good thing because it actually... I, you know, went to talk to my doctor. They were not happy that I was not going to continue doing some sort of treatments. They actually wanted to do some surgery to remove uh, what they called then at that time, debulking the tumors that were creating um, a lot of the pain and difficulty. And I said, no, I'm not going to have the surgery until after I do this program, which wow. really upset my medical team. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I went, I, and in that to five Haven. Haven and- uh, but the, the profound thing for me about Haven was one, there was a lot of emphasis on breathing and being in your body and witnessing other people being more fully who they were in whatever 
conversations they were having and a pathway for having real conversations mm-hmm. that was like, oh, this is different. And I watched these people be in relationships in a way that I had never witnessed. As, as a matter of fact, you know, I'll go back to my two tables, you yeah. know, because um, at one point in the Come Alive, they wanted to do a healing circle for me. And the two, there were two doctors who started this, Dr. Bennett Wong and Dr. Doc McKean. And they used their medical um, practices and models to a lot of brought that into their this healing circle. And they wanted to bring their friend, Father Jack, who's a Roman Catholic priest, in to do this healing circle. So there are like 24 participants in this program and then the, the, the team. And the last morning, they brought in Father Jack. And Jack came in with his, in his Catholic robes with holy oil and all hell broke loose in the room. I mean, people have some strong issues with the church. I remember- <laughs> I'm Catholic. I, I know this to be true. <laughs> but I was stunned by just how much there was just a lot of anger that one, he was there, two, he was there in his robes. And this guy, Father Jack was like- This guy. <laughs> you know, he's like, you know, well, I was sitting up against the wall, kind of almost like, whoa, this is way, uh, th- this is very uncomfortable. And because, because of the conflict that was happening. conflict. And I could tell people were really angry. And he, you know, then he did something that was like so different. He just, he said, look, I actually want to hear from you. And mm. we don't have to go forward with this healing circle yet. I actually want you to talk straight to me about why you're so angry with the church, with me, because I represent the church. Let's have this conversation. Wow, that's powerful. And very different than my minister at the table at the camp. Yes, exactly. So, you know, and all of a sudden people were just ripping at him. He was, but he was in the conversation. He'd actually acknowledge, yeah, there's, yeah, we are, we can be quite violent, I get. Mm. You know, there were things he said, um, you know, that had this, like this very heated, but an explosive conversation. But at the same time, there was stuff getting in. People were beginning because he stood right there in his own realness, exposed, real, um, vulnerable. And um, willing to hear. It sounds like he was actually willing to hear and acknowledge how people could get to their upsetness yes, about the Catholic Church. and genuinely curious about yeah. what these people had to say and not defending, but listening. And mm-hmm. it was, probably was a 45-minute experience of, you know, wow. and and then, you know, he said, you know, we how about we get back to this healing <laughs> circle? And I remember at that time, I felt such a privilege in some respects to have seen these people be so real and raw and open and him to be so real and raw and open. And so the invitation was, you know, I was, they wanted me to come out and I was going to sit there and breathe and be open to each one of them who wanted to participate, to come up and put this holy oil on my forehead. Cause that mm. was kind of this ritual that father Jack was offering. And then, uh, Doc did some acupuncture because that was his thing. And Ben was playing this beautiful music. And I remember having this moment of like, I could be open to this or I could be in my fear and shutting down because Mm. it's too much, you know, people, it's too close or too, you know, not. And I actually felt on a cellular level, like I'm going to be open to this. I commit. And I remember sitting there breathing and kind of shaking and trembling. And I could feel each person, I can still to this day kind of feel their fingers on my forehead. And Mm. I don't remember much of what they said, but it wasn't about the religion. They each had something they wanted to say to me. And I let that in Mm. and I could feel my body shifting. 
And I could feel the part of me that wanted to shut down, but also the part of me was like, no, no, this is a time to be open. Mm -hmm. These people were open. You can be open. And it was such a powerful experience. And I, you know, walked away uh, from the Come Alive, not, this was on the West Coast where I lived was on the East Coast. And I came back home and uh, because they had scheduled my surgery two days after the Come Alive to make sure that I would get it done. Mm -hmm. And my doctor coming in said, you know, maybe we should find out whether... Isn't that the woman doctor? Yeah, had two (laughs) main people on my case. And she was like, we should probably maybe do a test or two to see if she need, you know, something's different. But she could tell that you looked different. She thought something. She said, very different. She goes, you just, something's different. And, but we didn't do that. We did the surgery and uh, they opened me up and there was no evidence of the cancer. So they took out my appendix, you know, good for insurance purposes. (laughs) So slow down because I think that's pretty powerful. Mm. Most people, you know, you live through this, so you kind of scoot by it. But the fact that they opened you up and the tumors were gone. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I, I truly believe that in that moment, um, I think it was a combination of opening and being willing to connect and be real and relate and be in that. And then in that particular moment of the healing circle, also just being as wide open as I could be, there was a transformation, you know, and it occurred for me. And I believe it actually occurred for other people in that room based upon my connections and experience with them over time since then. I can just imagine people listening to this saying, oh, well, you probably never had cancer. Because I think, isn't that what well, kind of... Yes. My doctors kind of were like, we must have made a mistake. And it's like nine <laughs> months of, you know, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not so sure I'm going to go along with that belief. But I really have learned, um, and a few years later, a woman uh, was writing a book on uh, spontaneous healing and experiences like that. And she contacted me cause she wanted to interview me. And I had a real hesitation, like hesitation, like uh, no way, I don't want to be part of the book. And she's like, tell me why. And I said, well, because I know it's going to happen. You're going to talk to my doctors. It was not a pretty scene then they were not particularly, well, the one woman was actually very supportive, but most of my medical team was like, this is no, nothing you've done makes any sense. And we must've made a mistake and none of this ever happened. And, and uh, I, I don't want to drag that up again, mm-hmm. you know. And she actually said to me, um, she goes, I just want you to know that I would, of the people I've talked to, that part of the story is, has been consistent. Like, mm-hmm. I'm still willing to go, I'd still love to have you be in the book. But this is the thing that each person has said to me. Mm-hmm. Pulling up all those medical records, going back and is not something they want to do. Yeah. And I, I get it. Mm-hmm. That's not. So. So, I, I mean, you, your belief, and tell me where I'm wrong, is that that sense of connection and uh, alignment and openness is what transformed that cancer in your body. Yeah, I would say that for me is where the root of our model, mm-hmm. the concepts of vulnerability and curiosity came from. Mm-hmm. Like in that moment, in my experience, was one of the most vulnerable things I've ever witnessed and been a part of. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then for me, it was also like that mm-hmm. to stay open and, um, believe that I was worthy of even each of these people coming forward and mm-hmm. to allow for that. Um, especially since you had done such a lot of work to keep people away oh, and not show yes. up. And so I mean, there, it was almost like this internal alignment from the inside out with exactly. willingness to be seen and connect. And- the, they can. 
the compartments definitely were coming down. Yeah. And, you know, which it, I would imagine that's kind of like I've heard you talk about your belief about cancer cells, are our own natural energy or cells that have turned, um, turned against us to try to get our attention. Tell me where I'm wrong. Yes. I, I came to believe like the, the other thing that Haven offered me and which was powerful was this idea of, of not trying to get rid of cancer, but becoming curious about it mm -hmm. and becoming curious even about why I had covered things up or why I didn't remember things instead of being making myself wrong or fighting it or whatever else to become genuinely curious about it. And um, so cancer is, is like one of those things that we think of as some kind of foreign element, but it really is our own cells. We all have cancer cells and sometimes they go out of control. And I'd like to think that that is a, is a mechanism of creativity an explosion of creative expression that we could either listen to and be a part of, or, just try to get rid of and shove aside. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's information. I mean, I think that about cancer. I think that about any symptom. Mm -hmm. And some, it's not about I'm responsible for my cancer. It's I have an ability to respond and be in relationship to my cancer as opposed to just shutting it off and getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. There may be a conversation there that's worth having. Now, that wasn't the last bout of cancer that you had, right? So one, you're probably still in conflict with your family. You've got three months to live. They open you up. That cancer's gone. But what happened? What was the rest of the arc with your family, with your other health <laughs> issues that happened? Well, there, that was sort of uh, the, the everything started to erupt. Actually, in terms of the stuff that I remembered and can, dealing with things, that actually got worse after that. A lot more of the context of things that had happened when I was younger started to come forward I for started, you for me i started to remember it more directly i was back in where i grew up and trying in my own best way to confront it and being kind of threatened and all sorts of crazy stuff was going on mm. and i actually moved a I, lot of conflict a lot of conflict mm. on the outside not yeah. on the inside anymore. yeah right and i ended up moving uh to the west coast i had the opportunity to come back and be at the haven and take a whole uh series of programs. Mm -hmm. And as I began to work through my own history and unearth it, I also did get three other cancers uh, following up on that over the next few years. And each time had to kind of- These were different ones, right? Different. Um, and I had to deal with each of them in different ways. And the whole, you know, what I loved about Ben and Chalk was it'd be like, you got to go do the treatments. They weren't, they were very much traditional doctors, get the treatments, do what medical model can do best, which is, you know, get rid of these tumors, take them out surgically, have uh, chemo, do it radiation. And then you can work on if there's more residual work to be done, that's when you do it. And so both, uh, uh attaching or going through the Western medical model to get your treatments, but also looking at what's the underlying cause and how can I unravel this? Yeah. Are you willing to share kind of the different, the three other ones that you got? Well, I, I, I can really only tell you there, there was the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. There was a brainstem tumor. I, I don't know if it's, Oh, that's ideology. fine. There was a um, ovarian cancer and then there was an optic nerve tumor. So um, yeah. Mm -hmm. over the course of until the last 
uh, the optic nerve tumor was 1989. Okay. And uh, that was the last. So it was from 83 to 89 that you were yes. really dealing with all these different types of cancers. And your so what happened in the end with your relationships and, you know, over the arc of, and maybe it even took longer with your family or. Oh yeah. That took a lot, considerably longer. There was a, you know, there was definitely a fissure in the, in the planet for me around family community (laughs) that started uh, at the point at which, you know, it's like, you'd be better off dead. That definitely took me on a trajectory away from my family. Um, The, even my sister to some degree, even though she was she was the one who got me to Haven, so we had some contact. But I think it was really difficult for my family because it really pulled me away from any of them. And I have another sister and my parents, and I just couldn't deal mm-hmm. with them. And um, I actually believed that I would never get back in connection with them. Um, and eventually, uh, well, I think it was about a ten year span before doing my marriage and family therapy degree i did go back to get my master's in marriage and family therapy i was encouraged to do a family um conference (laughs) actually they gave me permission not to do it because of my history but i decided to do it and i brought my family to haven Mm -hmm. and um i think what was most moving this is to work just with them with ben and jock and joanne who are the three primary leaders of the haven and um my sister who had come to the Come Alive, and her husband came, my mom and dad came. My other sister did not choose to come to that. And I later learned just how um, painfully difficult. Like when I separated my family, I separated from her too. And I think she did not understand that. Mm. And, you know, to this day, I get that was, um, you know, we have since reconnected, but yeah. that was, I didn't have a clue how, how painful that was. For the, impact the impact you had on her. Yeah, until much later. And but when we came together at this family conference, I also knew Ben, Jock, and Joanne. And they, they, you may think they were holding a space for me to show up. <laughs> and I know them. They were like, "No, we are holding a space for your parents. They're the ones who are taking the biggest risk coming here. Yeah. And and we are going to hold you to the fire to stay. We're not, you know, uh, um, to show up. And mm-hmm. you know, I actually had this belief that what would be the most powerful thing about that meeting with my family would be that I would finally get to tell my side of the story and be heard. And I did. They, you know, there was room for each of us to share what had happened. But what was most powerful was when I actually it was really when I heard my mom tell her side of the story. And for the first time, I just felt what it must have been like for her to have mm-hmm. me suddenly come up with these things that in her mind were just crazy, Mm. you know, didn't make any sense. And instead of having to figure out who was right or wrong, I just had compassion and empathy for the person I saw sitting in front of me, telling me a very different story um, than my own. And maybe I think it was because I didn't, at that point, this wasn't about safety. I wasn't at risk. They weren't at risk. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, they and I could hear it from the lens of just another human being who did not seem to know that anything was wrong mm. and and what it was like to be to hear it a totally different story and i was I was moved by my ability to have empathy you know? <laughs> I was moved because by myself but by like, your mom well that know that at this point it I could really get it for okay. the, I got that is. That is what it means to be able to sit with someone and not have to be right or wrong, but to just hear them and hear their story 
for what it is. And that is when healing occurs. Wow. And that I had that profound experience. I mean, I think people had had it. I'd had it. Other people had offered me that, but it was the first time I'd ever been able to offer it in such a contentious place with my mom where normally I would have fought and, and I didn't. Wow. So that's the beauty. Yeah, that's conflict. the beauty of conflict. We didn't. So, <laughs> so her willingness to be vulnerable and say the impact of your behavior on her when she couldn't really make sense of what you were yeah. doing and, and your willingness to be curious and have empathy for her created space for both of you to exist, not necessarily agree. It sounds like, no, you know, and you know, Ben and Jock had told me that for years, we're not, we're not invested in whose story is right or wrong. We are invested in you because your, your story is valid for you and her story is valid for her. Mm-hmm. We want to create the space where you guys can hear each other. Cause if you can get there, you drop out of that. Mm-hmm. You don't. this no longer is about right or wrong. Maybe when you're, when you're thinking safety, maybe you do have to do that with children or whatever. But when we're adults, usually that's not what's happening. Right. You know, so often we stay in those little kid roles, though, with yes. those people, yes. those bigger people in and, our lives. And yeah. it is like in any given situation, is this really a matter of safety right now? And if it is, then yes. Take care of that. Take care of that. But mm-hmm. if it's not, then have the capacity to listen to someone. Wow. Yeah. You know. So this is a really powerful story, Susan, and I love that you were willing to, because I didn't think you, I don't think you thought you were going to go here. No, this is, <laughs> no, this so thank not. you. So, I mean, and that happened, you know, uh, in the nineties now for the last mm, 25 years, you've been working with people to say a little bit about how you've taken that and helped other people see the beauty in conflict, whether that's working with couples, whether it's working with business teams or even individuals as you coach. Well, I, I think. You know, what I walked away from that with and when I got my health and my life back was a commitment to not let my story or a story create so much pain and suffering in my life or someone else's life. Hmm. And that relationships, our ability to relate and really connect in any kind of way, shape or form depends on our ability to be curious and vulnerable and, you know, to show up and expose ourselves potentially to danger, that Mm -hmm. vulnerability concept, and to be curious, even if the story is radically different than my own, because that allows me to see the world from a much, much broader perspective. Well, and I think even really with your, that piece that you're saying, kind of, I think you're referencing with your mom is not just see her story, but feel her pain and Mm -hmm. why it was so important. that piece, I think, transcends even the story part to the human connection. Yes. Mm -hmm. And over and over, you know, I went on to, and I have led programs up at the Haven for years because they're so profound. And why to me they're so profound is because people from all walks of life with very different stories come together and experience that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And since then I've gone on become even more profoundly interested in helping people, what I call tap back into their mojo, because that's what I walked away with my, and my mojo back intact, so Mm -hmm. to speak. I had my heart and my spark Mm -hmm. and it wasn't going to go out again. Mm -hmm. And I think so many times life and the world around us takes our heart and spark and dampens it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very committed to helping people get back in touch with their heart and spark and be able to have that shine in relationship to another person. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
So. I mean, I think you we talk about this in uh, in our books, both the beauty of conflict for couples and the beauty of conflict. But you also do you've also we do two day offsites with corporate teams, but you also do find your mojo in Montana and couples mojo. So yes, you, you've incorporated I mean, the horses. Can you just say a teeny well? Bit you know the the for me when I got the opportunity to work with horses. Um, what was so profound to me about horses is horses are inherently herd animals. They are relational. They are as vulnerable, more vulnerable than we are. They really have no capacity to. Well, they, they have no fangs. Yeah, they have no fangs. <laughs> They're prey. Yeah, they can run, but um, that's, it. <laughs> that's it. And what really makes them survive over all the years that they've survived is the way in which they they are the masters of emotional intelligence. They read energy. They pick up energy. They're constantly in, in natural herds communicating with each other. Um, and so I had the opportunity to do some work with uh, Coel Simpson, who uh, through the Equus, she does Equus coaching. And it was very powerful for me to begin to bring what I had learned from that work into the work that I also had learned from the Haven and incorporated into my own way of being in the world. And so it was such a nice, uh, you know, um, blended. blended. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I have, um, so I love the opportunities now that I get to bring people out to the horses because sometimes it's just nice Horses aren't storytellers, so they, they don't get caught up in the stories, and, but they are powerful magnets of energy, mm-hmm. and something happens for someone when they're around a horse, and for me, it's been a place to be able to be more open-hearted, and I find other people get back into that open part place around horses. Which is really the magic that you experienced at the Come Alive it and is. helped transform your health. Yes. You know? So instead of taking people to two tables, dinner tables, <laughs> I take people out to the horses. You know? <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for this interview. Is there anything else that you would like to add on why the beauty of conflict or how your history has impacted how you show up today? And I know you've gone through huge transformations around that. Well, I, you know, uh, some of the, I love the work that we get to do in, in sort of, it's kind of interesting in the corporate world. It feels, it sort of reminds me of the table, the mm-hmm. camp director's table. There's mm-hmm. a power player there. There's a lot of politics going on, a lot of silence. And so sometimes, sometimes <laughs> you know, and it reminds me of that particular table. And then we also get to do this deeply personal work with couples and with people about their lives. And it's a little more like the table that my mom sat at, in my opinion. People would show up differently. And I am very excited that I have somehow brought back uh, and have uh, and have the opportunity to do this work to change the conversation. Because I think what we do, tell me if you disagree, we take what's under the table and put it on those two tables. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's in the corporate world. And or you still company. may be able to have a good dinner while you're going through it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you, Susan. I really appreciate that. Uh, Your willingness to be so vulnerable and share your story. It's powerful. Mm. And uh, we will hope you enjoyed it as well. If you have any questions or comments, you can certainly write in and you'll have the show notes. Uh, Anything else we should add? No, that sounds okay. Sounds good. Take care. (laughs) 
Well, thank you for listening to the Beauty of Conflict podcast. If you're dealing with a difficult situation in your life or work, remember, every conflict is a chance for you to be vulnerable and curious and find creative solutions that you hadn't considered before and make your situation even better. Beautiful breakthroughs can be born out of conflict. We've seen this happen thousands of times over the last 20 years, and we know this is possible for everyone, including you. We're grateful you listened to this show and we're rooting for you. And if you enjoyed this show, please tell a few friends and or post a five-star review on iTunes. Your review helps new listeners discover this show. More people listening to this show means less friction and arguing and suffering out in the world. So that's a great thing for everyone. Also visit our website, thriveinc.com. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-I-N-C.com to read our articles, join our newsletter, buy our books, and learn more about the services that we offer. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a peaceful, productive, and beautiful day.